0: new sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. We started last week. We pick up today Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Hear now God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. We were going for a run the other day before the snow came. I really love snow and look forward to skiing, and I know I'm crazy that way, but I'm trying to endure until snow comes. We're out in a run. We go through a crosswalk. Have you seen these fancy new crosswalks? You hit the button to cross, and what does it tell you to do? Have you heard this? Wait. And you hit it again, and what does it say? Wait. And wait. And the longer it tells you to wait, the more impatient you are in waiting. These things are kind of in my head. It's hard to wait, isn't it? It's hard to wait in line for coffee. It's hard to wait for your car to get fixed. Advent, loved ones, is a season of expectation and waiting. And as one author says, so much of the waiting for significant things, not crosswalks, but serious stuff that occupies our day-after-day-after-day life is open-ended. We wait for love and marriage, not knowing if it will come. We wait for children not knowing whether we will conceive. We wait for test results, not knowing what they will reveal. We wait for healing, knowing that we might not be healed in this life. The hardest thing about waiting, one person says, is not knowing when it's going to end or if it's going to end. Waiting brings questions without easy answers. In this season of Advent, we are waiting and expecting. We are looking back at the first coming of Christ. That's what the word Advent means. And we look forward to his return. So there's a twofold emphasis in Advent. And the focus is entirely on the Son of God who became man. And that Son of God who became man, who will return one day in glory. That Son of God who is Emmanuel, God with us. And so as we look at this passage today, we want to pray that the Holy Spirit will help us not to think we've kind of heard all these things before. Maybe you have. Maybe it's the first time. But that we would have eager expectation that the Lord would meet with us now and that he would return as he promised. First, we look at a righteous man. Imagine you're receiving the Gospel of Matthew for the first time. It was not that long before Matthew wrote his gospel, that Jesus was born. And Matthew begins by giving you this long list of names, like we saw last week, and your head is probably spinning. But now the camera slows down. Now Matthew says, I'm going to tell you about a baby that was born in the line of David. I'm going to tell you about the one who fulfills the promises of the covenant of grace made to Abraham. I'm going to tell you that this didn't happen that long ago to those he's writing to. I'm going to tell you this baby came into the world in a way you never would have imagined unless you had paid very close attention to Isaiah 7. The camera focuses in on one man from the genealogy. Who's that, children? Joseph, who's probably 18 to 21 years old, and he's betrothed to Mary, who's maybe 13 or 14. In this context, That word betrothal means much more than engagement to us today. It's a legal contract. We read in verse 19, Joseph is already called Mary's husband. It's a legal status. It lasted about a year. The marriage is not yet consummated, however. So for this entire year, Mary and Joseph are not only not living together, they are not seeing one another together in person at all alone. That's what's going on in this context. And at that point, can you imagine, Joseph finds out she's pregnant. He and the whole world assumes what? She's been unfaithful. His mind is racing. The girl I love, what's happening, I don't understand. Imagine men. You're not the father. She's pregnant. You're going to be married soon. It's gut-wrenching. Do you wonder, what was Joseph's story? The Bible doesn't tell us much about him, does it? Sinclair Ferguson says, some people say, this is not from the Bible, but they're speculating. Some say, was he a young widower with children at this point? We don't know. But we do know sorrow after sorrow is added as he hears this news. His future now, when he hears about this, seems lonely and bleak. And it's in that that God is humbling Joseph. The man or woman God uses, he bruises. He humbles. He's teaching Joseph complete dependence upon God. What's Joseph going to do? In that day, he has two options. Bring a lawsuit against Mary and publicly disgrace her or divorce her quietly. Matthew says Joseph is a just man. He loves the Lord. He loves the word of God. He's also a kind man. In this point in the history of the New Testament world, adultery was not being punished by death. In the Old Testament, you read about that. But at this point, Joseph could have publicly expelled her and disgraced her, Or done it privately, which he chose to do. Why? Because he's a a kind man. He's not wanting to bring ridicule upon her. He's a lot like God, his father. Righteous and kind and doing what's right. And he considers these things, verse 20. So he's pondering it. He's praying about it. He's asking for probably God's wisdom as to what to do reminds us, as we have big decisions to make, we should never do that impulsively. We should pray, open the word of God, ask other godly Christians for wisdom and advice. So what does he decide to do? He loves Mary deeply, and yet he decides to divorce her quietly, with a broken heart. It's a reminder, dear Christian, that sometimes divorce is just, with the proper biblical grounds. Matthew will talk about that later in this book. But then, as he decides to do this, as Christmas begins with an almost divorce, what happens, children? An angel comes to Joseph in a dream. Now, this is not your dream where you thought about, in your dream, big purple hippopotamuses that were kind of coming from the lake and you were wondering, where do these guys come from? Meaning, this is real. He really had an angel, a real angel, appear to him, a messenger of God. We're not sure who this angel is. Is it Gabriel? Gabriel had visited uh, Elizabeth, uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, excuse me, and also Mary, but we don't know if that's who this is. We do know angels exist. There's two extremes to avoid with angels, loved ones. One is like the Sadducees, to deny that they exist, And children, that is why they are sad, you see. Sorry, sad, you see. The other extreme is to over-spiritualize it and look to see an angel under every rock. Angels are messengers of God, and Joseph is getting special revelation from God. The angel addresses him, Joseph, how son of David, tying it right back to the genealogy. Joseph's a carpenter. He's in the line of David, and he's told, don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife, Joseph. There's a piece of this puzzle that you're missing. You assumed she had been unfaithful. But once the right piece is there, the whole picture is going to look differently, Joseph. She has not committed adultery. She has not been unfaithful. She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph never speaks in the Bible. We know nothing more about him. He appears only one other time, later, when G- Jesus was a boy. But we do know this from this passage. Joseph hears the word of God, he believes, he trusts, and he obeys. He doesn't have to look around and say, well, I've got to get a council of people now, to decide here. See the difference? This is God directly giving him revelation. He knows what he has to do. He knows there'll be people whispering and wagging their fingers and commenting and saying all sorts of awful things probably. But what Joseph most feared was God himself. Not in a slavish way, but as a son delights in their parents. Joseph loved his father Joseph was given grace to obey God. What he most wanted to do was to obey the Lord. The healthiest and best fear that we have is that same fear of the Lord. Joseph awoke, and he did as the Lord said. He didn't know what was coming next, that God would send Joseph and Mary and the Christ child to Egypt, away from all those self-righteous stares of people who are looking at them, down their noses at them. Joseph is the man that God chose and prepared to protect and nurture his incarnate Son. That's an astounding reality. Into this new family, Jesus was conceived by the Spirit. Joseph is to adopt Jesus. So Jesus will grow up in a family with one father and one mother and adopted. Father, of course. Joseph probably spent a lot of time with Jesus, kids. Much like you do with your mom or your dad. Jesus probably looked up to him, watched him as a carpenter, learned from him. Joseph probably taught Jesus the Bible. Jesus wasn't born as an infant with the whole Bible memorized. He learned these things. He learned obedience. He grew in wisdom and stature. Did Joseph teach him about the promises of the Davidic covenant that Jesus would fulfill? That Jesus is that promised son of David? Did Joseph teach him about the prophecies of Jesus' own death? He taught him the word of God. Matthew 1.25 says, he was in the habit, not in the habit, of knowing her until she brought forth her firstborn son. Joseph and Mary were pure before God, before their marriage. This does not mean Mary perpetually was a virgin. It talks in the Bible about Jesus' other siblings, half-siblings, of course. What it does remind us of is the good and pure and honoring sexual fulfillment in marriage between one man and one woman. That is a really important thing for us. That the physical relations between a husband and wife are an expression of, of the unreserved, deep, lifelong self-surrender of two people to each other. They are a way of communicating our total devotion and lifelong commitment. Without that, sexual relations are a mere satisfaction, sinfully, of our selfish desires. Without this, they become a hypocrisy, where we physically express something we don't really mean, which is why God knows best This is good for us, sexual relations in marriage between one man and one woman. God created this. He knows what's best for you, loved ones. Jesus turns things upside down. He did so in Joseph's life. He does so in our lives, meaning he turns things the right way up. And we see, secondly, that happens with a pregnant virgin. What do we know about Mary? Her early life was spent in Nazareth. She has a cousin, Elizabeth. She's probably poor, hardworking. She herself had an angel appear to her. The same message, basically. So she also probably felt anxiety. What are people going to say? This potential scandal before them. Mary is a virgin. And children, the Bible addresses us here. God's will for you is to remain a virgin until you get married. Not to live with someone, not to cohabitate, not to be involved in sexual immorality. Until that day when you are married, then you can enjoy the husband or wife that God has for you. What's happening here in a bigger sense is the fulfillment of prophecy. This goes back, loved ones, back, 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 Chris Berman used to say, back, 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 to Genesis 3 the promise at the dawn of redeeming grace of a Savior who would crush the head of the serpent. It goes back to 2 Samuel 7. Someone would sit on David's throne. But do you notice in verse 23 of Matthew 1? In particular, it goes back to Isaiah 7. 700 years before Jesus was born, Matthew has more quotations from Isaiah than any other book, over 40 of them. So as you're going through, we're going through Matthew together, I would encourage you to read Isaiah. I've been reading it in the morning myself. And to, to walk through that book as well as Matthew. Isaiah 7:14 is in the middle of a context. The reigns of Jeroboam II of Israel and Uzziah of Judah were long and prosperous. But in the year that King Uzziah died, Everything changed. A new power had arisen. Assyria and their king, who is hungry for battle. He's advancing. The kingdom of Israel is split. Ten in the north tribes, two in the south. Ahaz is the king of the south. He's a wicked man. He's apostate. He denies the Lord. He worships the Baals. He burned his sons in fire. And he's in the line of Jesus, the genealogy. So is his son, Hezekiah, the godly king. Early in his reign, this is the stuff of war stories, loved ones. You've got two kings, the king of Israel, the king of Syria. They come together, they say, let's go take out Ahaz. We can divide up his kingdom. We can set up our own puppet king to kind of rule the southern kingdom. The line of David is over, and we got the stuff. And this was not just rumor. The king of Israel, Pekah, had killed 120,000 men from Judah in one day. They took captive 200,000 women and children, 2 Chronicles 28. It is a national crisis. Ahaz and the people shook with fear. imagine. These armies are surrounding the city. The threat is imminent. What does Ahaz do? Well, God, before that, sends him a word, doesn't he? A word from a prophet, the prophet Isaiah. And God says, Ahaz, don't worry about these guys. They're like smoldering brands of coals in a fire. They're nothing compared to me. Don't put your trust in these other nations around you. Trust me. In fact, Ahaz I'm going to give you a sign. Do you want a sign? When God gives signs, they're always to encourage us to build up our faith. Noah, after the flood, there's a rainbow. God says, I'm never going to flood the earth again. That's a sign. That's my covenant. That's my promise to you. In the new covenant, Christian, the signs of the covenant, baptism, the Lord's Supper, built up to assure you in the gospel of God's love for you. Ahaz says, I don't want a sign. I don't need a sign. I'm good. Does it sound pious to you? It's called fake humility. He's really, really proud. Because in his mind, he doesn't need this Isaiah, prophet, God stuff. He's got a plan. I've got a better plan than that, he says. I've got a plan to join with Assyria. Assyria is way bigger than Israel, way bigger than Syria. i got it all taken care of. That's his plan. God says to him in Isaiah 8, you want that plan? You can have that plan. Assyria will mow you down, Ahaz, but I'm going to give you a sign anyway, a sign that will be for you judgment, but for my people, grace. It's going to take hundreds of years before this sign, Ahaz, comes to pass. You're not going to see it, but my people will. Out of the land of darkness, a light has shone. There will be a child who's not Isaiah's child, who's not Ahaz's child, who's not Hezekiah's child. A child born how? Of Of a what, kids? Of a virgin. That's right. Has there ever been a child born of a virgin? No. God will do this. It will happen 700 years in the future, and both Luke and Matthew tell us that the angels give the same message to Mary and to Joseph. A sign that God is with us. The Holy Spirit prepares a body for the Son of God. The eternal, infinite Son of God becomes man. He doesn't stop being God. He's not 50-50. He's truly God, truly man. He grew in Mary's uterus. At four weeks, he's the size of a poppy seed. At 33 weeks, the size of a pineapple. He grew like you grew kids in mom, mom's tummy, just like those of you who are pregnant have a baby growing now. You might say that's impossible. We know better now, right? We're, we're advanced beyond this virgin birth stuff. you Remember the story? I've told it before. C.S. Lewis. There are some people singing Christmas songs, He's an English professor at Oxford, and there's a man talking to him, listening to the songs. He says to C.S. Lewis, isn't it better and good that we know now better than they did? C.S. Lewis says, I don't know what you mean. Isn't it good that we now know that virgins don't have babies? C.S. Lewis looked at him and he said, don't you think they knew that? That's the whole point. They knew babies aren't born of virgins, which is why a cloud of suspicion and shame and scandal hung over Mary and Joseph. When Jesus was born, people said, this must be an illegitimate child of a Roman soldier who cohabitated with Mary. Mary's an adulteress. That stuff was going on then. It's a miracle. God did it. We can't work out in our minds How God did it? God is God. We're not. Can we work out in our minds how God created the world by speaking it into existence? How God raised Jesus from the dead? How God brought you and I, dead sinners, from death to life through the new birth? We would need to be God to work out all that He does. Christianity is supernatural from start to finish. And the virgin conception is one element in it. Why is this important? Because without the virgin birth, there is no Christianity. If this goes, Christianity goes, which won't happen. God won't allow it. But, loved ones, Jesus himself is fully God, fully man. And the virgin birth explains this in a way that we can't fully comprehend, but it's it's true. He has a divine nature from the Father from all eternity. A human nature from the Virgin Mary with the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. If he was born of a sinful human father without the Holy Spirit working, he'd be a sinner. Then we have no Savior. If he's born... Without being born of a woman, then he's not fully, truly human. We have no savior. God becomes man. So as a baby, he cried. He slept. He got hungry. He's bone of our bones, flesh of our flesh, yet without sin. Matthew tells us this so simply. Isn't this amazing, verse 25? What does it say? You see that? She gave birth to a son. <laughs> right, right? You read that and think, that's it? Incredible. Now, Luke brings us a little bit more into the details of this. Do you remember what Luke says? I want to bring this out because There are some things that we think of when it comes to Christmas that we kind of need to have changed. Here's what I mean. Luke says the child was laid where? In a manger. Because why? There was no room for them in the inn. Michael Kruger, conservative, faithful, Reformed professor and scholar, says this. Typically you see what? Joseph and Mary who's on the verge of giving birth, who are turned away by an innkeeper who shows them no compassion, right? You've seen that or heard that? Do you know the Bible never mentions an innkeeper? Never says it. And it's possible there was not even an inn, I-N-N, at all. The Greek word for inn is best translated, Luke 2, 7, as guest room, Kruger says, place to stay. So the passage is not saying there was no room in the inn, but there was no room for baby Jesus in the guest room, the place they stayed. How does the typical narrative go? Joseph could not could not find a spot in the inn, so where did he have to go? To a stable or a cave? The Bible never says stable. Never says cave. It says Mary laid him where? In a manger. Now, a manger suggests a feeding trough for animals. That's true. Why would this be? Certain village homes in the New Testament were built according to two-level plans. The door opens to a lower level. The animals come in for safety and warmth in the evening. So nearby, the animals are hanging out there, kids, and they've got a manger there. Attached to this room, Kruger says, is a guest room reserved for guests and offering hospitality. So where is Jesus being born? One man says they're probably staying in the home of Joseph's family in Bethlehem, perhaps in an adjacent guest room, which would have been small. Joseph, remember, is from Bethlehem. Mary gives birth to Jesus there. The room, though, is so small that it couldn't accommodate a birth. So Kruger says... Mary had to give birth in the larger family room and lay Jesus where? In the manger nearby. The point is that the eternal Son of God was laid in the trough where animals are laid and where animals eat. Exalted in majesty, he comes to take the poverty of our sin. He's placed in a manger. And C.S. Lewis comes to mind again. The last battle. Tyrion and Lord Diggory are looking into a stable. And they say, the inside of the stable is bigger than the outside. Remember that? Now, what does Lucy say? I'm going to paraphrase in light of what I just said about stables. Lucy says, in our world too, a manger once had something in it. Bigger than the whole world. In that manger was someone Holding up the whole world, the Son of God, while nursing at Mary's breast. Dear Christian, God with us, the Incarnation. God is infinite. We are finite. We can't approach God by ourselves. But in mercy and love and grace, God has condescended to you in Jesus. We see a window into the heart of God in the Incarnation. Third, we see this in the names of the child. Verse 21, we're so used to ultrasounds and finding out if it's a boy or girl beforehand. We read this and we don't even think much of it, right? Look at what it says, though. The angel says to Joseph, you will have a son. In those days, they weren't told that. (laughs) They didn't know that. His name will be Jesus. A common name like Bill or Mike. There were people named that all over the first century world. But nothing common about what he would do. But it does remind us, loved ones, Jesus looks ordinary. There's nothing about him that would attract people to him externally. Isaiah tells us that. What does the name Jesus mean? It means God saves. This is what Jesus came to do. To save you, but to save you from what? The Lord saves and delivers his people in many ways, When Jesus came, he gave food to the hungry. He healed the sick. He comforted the brokenhearted. But he didn't do what they wanted him to do, many of them, which was what? Deal with the political oppression. Get rid of the Romans. That's what we want, a savior to kick out these wretched rulers. He didn't come to do that. He came to deal with a much bigger problem that we all have. The biggest problem we all have which is our need as sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. So the song by Harry Belafonte you hear on Cool 108 right now isn't right. Remember what he says? Man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Not true. You can't isolate the incarnation from the atonement. You can't talk about the cradle without also the cross. We just sang, what child is this? Nails, spear will pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. He came to die, loved ones, to die for your sins, to satisfy the justice and the wrath of God that we deserve. Jesus is his name. Jesus is who he is today. Do you trust him by faith? Do you love him? Do you pray, Holy Spirit, help me to obey him today? Who did he die for? What does it say, verse 21? His people. We talked about that in the doctrines of grace, do you remember? He died for his sheep, his church, his bride. And the Bible tells us there is salvation in no other name. And the offer of the gospel goes to all today. For those who are here who don't believe in Jesus, Jesus says, come to me. You who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You don't have to clean up your life to come. You don't have to get things in order to come. Jesus says, come to me. I'll take care of that sin. I'll take care of the justice of God. Believe in me by faith and be saved. Repent and believe. But why did Jesus have to become a man? Why did the Son of God come into the world? Why did he have to endure what he endured? The Heidelberg Catechism wonderfully tells us in question 16, why must he be a true and sinless man? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should make satisfaction for sin. But no man, being himself a sinner, could satisfy for others. Loved ones, he came as a man to represent us as the perfectly obedient last Adam, Adam failed. He brought the curse of God on the whole human race. God promised to Abraham a, a Savior, the dawn of redeeming grace. Would Abraham be that Savior? No, he was a sinner. How about David and his sons? None of them. The, the sin of David's sons and the exile reminded us that we need a Savior who is perfectly righteous and just and holy, who represents us. Not only as True God, but uh, a true man, but why must he also be true God? Heidelberg, question 17. That by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath, and so obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. The perfect righteousness we need to stand before a holy God, he provides. What do you need this Christmas? We need the gift of forgiveness. And those who are forgiven become forgiving people. Dear Christian, this doesn't just take place isolated in our minds. Those who realize the greatest thing they need is forgiveness become loving people. One man said, people don't fall out of love, they fall out of forgiveness. I'm not talking about cases of abuse. I'm talking about in the ordinary life of living as sinners, spouses, relatives, friends, fellow church members fall out of forgiveness. Isn't that true? And then when we stop forgiving each other, we stop loving each other. In this season of trials and sufferings, it's a hard season. How is your relationship right now with your spouse? How is your relationship with your kids? With your stepchildren? How is your relationship with your parents? How about cousins or siblings you haven't talked to for a while? How is your relationship with friends that maybe has been broken? How about church members that maybe you don't know or don't want to know or knew but don't want to know anymore? That's where the gospel works by the Spirit to change us to be more like Christ because Advent is about a new beginning. A new beginning God has provided for us in Jesus. So today, we don't live in regret or guilt. We don't rummage in the past. But by faith in Christ, we press forward for the joy that's set before us. Christ is our joy. Here's what Ferguson says. Joy, think about this in terms of a practical application. J-O-Y, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. That's a good place to start if we want to experience joy this Christmas. And we can do so only because of God with us. That's his name. Loved ones, this promise is the center of the Bible. God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. God came to be with us, not in a flaming fire pot, like to Abraham, but as a baby. He came not only to represent us as the last Adam, to accomplish our redemption, to save us from our sins, but to sympathize with you. Do you know that? He entered your suffering, bore your sin, plumbed the depths of sorrow that we might find in him. One who can sympathize with us in our weakness. He gets it. You say no one else does. Yeah, that might be true. Hopefully, as a church family, we start to understand and grow in all these areas, which we all can do by the grace of God. But he gets it. Jesus is God with us. Three times in Matthew we read this. Here in Matthew 1. In Matthew 18, in the context of an unrepentant sinner and the purity of the church and church discipline and the elders asking for God to be with them right now to restore, to bring to repentance, and to preserve the purity of the church, Jesus is there. And at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, Jesus says, I am with you how long? Always, to the end of the age Jesus is with you when your child goes away to school for the first time and you're nervous. Jesus is with you when your child moves away to another state. Jesus is with that child. Jesus is with you when you're lonely and sick. When you're afflicted and afraid. Jesus is Emmanuel, God, with you. Because you've been made for this. You've been saved for fellowship with the living, triune God. God made you to enjoy him, to commune with him, to delight in him, and he has come near to you. And he is near with us now, loved ones, by his word, by his spirit, by baptism, by the Lord's Supper. Jesus, loved ones, is not like any ordinary man. His supernatural birth, in which people mocked and said he's the illegitimate son of a man who seduced Mary. The real story is a virgin birth, a Holy Spirit empowered birth, a life when he came to live with the sick and heal them, to save lost sinners, a death in our place on the cross as our substitute, and a bodily resurrection. Do you see those pillars? Virgin birth, bodily resurrection. There is something about Jesus that is different than any person who has ever lived. Salvation comes to us, not from within us, but from outside this world. God has become man. An Advent, a time of waiting, a time of remembering Christ's first coming, A time of giving thanks to Christ for his presence with us, and a time of waiting for his return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let those who have ears to hear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that the joy of our Savior. Emmanuel, God with us, will strengthen us in the midst of sorrow and sin, affliction and trials, and that you will help us as a church to love one another, to pray for one another, to care for one another in tangible ways as an expression of what it means to be those who are found in Christ. Help us to forgive as you have first forgiven us, O God, in Christ. Help us, O God, by your Spirit, because by ourselves we cannot possibly do this. May we find joy in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.